0: Thank you, Barrett, and team for leading us in worship and for all the things that you've heard about this morning. And I want to tell you a story today, well, it's not really a story, it's just an incident in my life that happened this past fall, where I went to the mailbox and I got the mail and I sifted through the flyers looking for something personal. And then I noticed the brown envelope. It had that familiar federal government look and I turned it over to discover that it came from the Canada Revenue Agency, or tax department. And I quickly opened it up, hoping that it was a notice about some tax credit that I was getting, but it was a somewhat personal letter, and it contained the dreaded five-letter word, audit. They wanted to look more deeply into something on my tax return. They outlined the requested information, and then they ended the letter with their usual threats. If you don't respond within 30 days, these are the consequences. So how, how do you think you might respond to such a letter? And I can tell you how I did not respond in that moment. I didn't praise the Lord for an opportunity to grow in character. I didn't run back to my wife to tell the good news about a tax audit. I didn't relish the open door to increase my trust in the Lord. I probably rolled my eyes and groaned. And then I wondered why they were doing this, and did I have the right documents, and started to calculate, or wonder how much time might this take. And I can honestly say that receiving an audit letter from the CRA was not on my bucket list, but now I can check it off anyway. And thankfully, this was resolved in a fairly short time. But it certainly caused some stress and a bit of anxiety and some grumbling. And such a response is normal for me. My approach to trouble is to try to get through it and get over it as quickly as possible. And there's some good in this approach in that there's a willingness to face troubles, but sometimes I can rush or try to force things. And I don't know if ever in my life I have approached my troubles initially by accepting them. I don't look at them as opportunities for growth and faith strengthening. I have seen troubles as something to avoid as much as possible. But trials and troubles are a part of our life. And many of you face or endure trials that cannot be dealt with quickly. You may endure constant physical pain with no cure. You may be going through grief, which takes months or even years to deal with. You or someone close to you may have some mental health issues that will require serious time to resolve. Maybe you or someone in your family has an incurable condition that apart from a miracle will not change or you may be walking through a time of job loss, or adjusting to retirement, or enduring a difficult legal process, or you may be waiting for some medical treatment, or some information, or surgery, or you may have a child with some health or developmental challenges. Some endure broken relationships that you'd like to reconcile, but the other party refuses. And some of you have that difficult person at your workplace or at home, or in class that you have to deal with almost every day. Many have loved ones who don't know Christ or have turned away from Christ, and your heart aches for them. And none of these troubles involve quick fixes. So we need to learn how to live with our troubles and trials and go through them. And recently, God impressed upon me that I can place more value on a trial-free day than I can on him himself. I wrote this in my journal, Forgive me, Lord, for wanting no trouble more than I want you. I confess that in this time of trouble, I have placed my hope and peace in having no trouble. But that's not realistic. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world, and I now realize that if I didn't have trouble... I wouldn't be driven to you, for you are the ultimate source of life, hope, peace, and soul silence. So in a way, trouble has led me to you and a deeper walk with you for which I am thankful. I think even that letter from CRA caused me to pray, to go towards God, which is always a good thing. Yet that was not the first or the last trial that I will ever face in my life. You and I will face trials, troubles, tribulations They are a fact of our lives. So how can we endure life's trials in a way that glorifies God and may bring good to us? Is there a way? And the answer is yes. Christ enables us to endure trials and receive God's good for us in them. We can endure trials and receive God's good for us in them when we rely on Christ and his provisions. And please hear me carefully. I am not saying trials are good in themselves. Cancer is not good. Death is not good. Injustice is not good. We live in a fallen world. But God is sovereign and can bring good into our lives through trials. And that's what we're going to explore today as we begin a new series from the letter of James. James was one of Jesus' youngest brothers, or younger brothers, so he grew up in the home of Joseph and Mary, and the Gospels tell us that Jesus' brothers did not think that he was anything special. In fact, in John 7, 5, we read, not even his brothers believed in him. But James is eventually converted and convinced by a resurrection visit from his oldest brother, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, Then he appeared to James. And this James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He writes this letter to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the world who face significant trials. And so I'm going to give you today some facts about James that will help us read it in a gospel-centered way. And then we're going to learn about three provisions that Jesus can help us or bring to us that help us endure trials in a way that glorifies God and opens our lives to God's good for us in them. And finally, we'll look at how Jesus endured trials himself and can empower us to do the same. And I pray that you will gain strength from the Lord for any trials that you will face today or in the future. Through this text today. So I invite you to find the letter from James in your Bibles or on your devices, and we'll be reading James 1 1 to 12. It's also on page 854 in the Bibles in front of you if you want to follow along there. And the first 12 verses say this James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood at the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So five notes about the letter to James first. Number one, James assumes the gospel. James assumes it. So there's no mention of the cross or atonement in this letter. There's nothing about the blood of Christ or how it cleanses us from unrighteousness. Sharing the gospel is not James' primary concern. He assumes forgiveness and reconciliation with God and justification by faith. And then applies this to the people. And this is important to remember because of the second note or fact about James Number two, it contains 59 commands in 108 verses. And if you've ever read through this letter, you know that the commands can overwhelm you. You can read James and conclude, I've got 59 more items to add to my to-do list of being a good Christian. And if we forget that James assumes the gospel, we could read it, like a moralistic manifesto, we could conclude that the basic message is try really hard to obey all these commands and you will be a good Christian. But that's moralism where we just try to be good moral people in our own strength. So number three, note, we need the gospel to live out these commands. And there are hints of our need for Christ throughout the letter. For in the passage about the tongue, for example, in James 3, James makes this statement, James 3, 8, no human being can tame the tongue, which means we need a savior. Number four, James is deeply steeped in Old Testament law and his brother's teaching. He demonstrates strong knowledge of the law. It seems he paid close attention in the synagogue and when he was taught by Joseph and Mary. But it also seems that he paid close attention to his brother's teaching, even though he didn't believe in it at first, because some have noted parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. And then number five, James sometimes writes in a Jewish style like Proverbs. His thoughts can sometimes seem disconnected. They go from one set of commands to the next with no transitional sentence, which is unusual for us, but normal for a Jewish audience. And if you've ever read Proverbs, you will see this. Sometimes the verses follow a theme, but sometimes the verses in Proverbs are simply one wisdom saying after another. And the first chapter that we just read can seem like that as well. It seems like there's five disconnected paragraphs put together in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. But I agree with those who conclude that each one of James' seemingly disconnected paragraphs do follow the theme of trials and tribulations in chapter 1, and we'll see that as we walk through it. So with these notes in mind, and keep them in mind as we go through James, let's go to the passage. And first, James identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as the author, but notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't drop names. He doesn't say, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the Lord's brother, so you have to listen to me. He doesn't even say, I am an apostle. He says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has come to the place where he recognizes that his earthly brother Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Messiah's hope. And he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning Jewish Christians scattered all over the the world, for at the time of James' writing, that was primarily the church. And then he plunges into this letter, and here we find the first answer in verses 2 to 4 to the question, what good can God bring to us in trials? And number one is he can use trials to develop our steadfast faith in him. James writes this weird command in verse 2. Consider or count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. But no one is joyful when trials come into their lives. However, James is not commanding a feeling. He's commanding thinking. Consider, count it, all joy. Why? Because through trials, our faith gets tested and can grow steadfast. But to consider this joy, we need to see the value of a steadfast faith. What is so great about having a steadfast faith? And it's not so we can gain fame for our strong faith. It's because of the one we put our faith in. So God is the source of strength, hope, and life, and he proves himself as an always reliable object of faith, even in life's darkest times. So if we have a loved one who dies, where else can we turn for hope apart from God? So if our faith in the all-powerful God grows stronger, it is good for us. Our faith grows in strength, Mostly through trials. I mean, let's be honest, friends. When life is going well, we don't cry out to God for help. We think we've got it under control. We don't need any help. Life is smooth. But the moment we face something beyond us, we look for help. So trials can bring us closer to God. They don't guarantee that, because some people turn away from God in their trials, but they can bring us closer to God. And notice what else they accomplish in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And this means that God can use trials to grow us in maturity. Trials can be a remedy for our spiritual flaws. So say, someone has a problem with anger, and they know they should really work on that, but their family or people around them have adjusted to their proneness to anger. And they kind of walk on eggshells around the person. So the person prone to anger has no motivation to change because they get what they want. Just by threatening anger, people will conform to their desires Until someone says, enough. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And they tell the angry person that if you don't work on this, we're done. And that can happen between spouses or friends or between a child and a parent when the child grows up and becomes A young adult and says, I'm not putting up with your anger anymore, mom or dad. You have got to deal with it. So that the person prone to anger faces the trial of possibly losing their marriage or losing a relationship with their kids or maybe losing their job. And then they have a choice to make. Will they face their anger issues? Will they learn to trust more in Christ, to look after the things that they're angry about? Will they turn to the Lord for healing? Will they repent of their angry outbursts to those they've hurt? And if they take this opportunity presented by this trial, they will grow in maturity and completeness depending on Christ to lead them through it. So relationships can be restored. Trials can force us to deal with our issues and become mature, so we become mature and complete as we trust in the Lord to lead us through them. So hear me clearly again, cancer is not good, death is not good, relationship strife is not good, but God can bring good if we choose to draw near him in our trials. And we can do that when we ask Christ for a renewed mind about a purpose of trials. I put a purpose because I think there's many purposes that God has for trials. But one purpose for trials is that our faith can be strengthened in him. And so we can, we can pray, Jesus, I don't like this trial in my life. But please renew my mind so I can receive whatever good you have for me in it. And this is one good that the Lord can bring in trials. A more steadfast faith in him. There's another good that God can bring us in trials in verses 5 to 9, and that is that God is ready to give his wisdom generously without finding fault. Now this paragraph seems like it's completely disconnected with the one before, which was talking about trials, and now we're talking about wisdom. And verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But I agree with those who are saying... We're asking for wisdom with our trials. James seems to be putting this here so that we are reminded we can tap into God's wisdom as we walk through the trials of our lives. And notice God's posture towards those who lack wisdom. He's willing to give it generously to us. And he gives without reproach. This means that he gives without mocking, without coming down on us, without saying... I can't believe you're asking that. You should know better. God does not look at us like that. He gives generously his wisdom without finding fault. And when you face trials, ask for God's wisdom. He's waiting to give it to you generously without looking down on you. James follows then with a warning about doubting. In verse 6 he says, but when he asks... He must ask in faith with no doubt or without doubting. And we can look at that and say, well, the only way that I'm going to get wisdom from God or the only way that I'm going to get an answer to prayer from God is if I 100% believe that he's going to answer and have 0% doubt in my heart. And if I don't get what I asked for, it's because I didn't have enough faith or I doubt it. I don't think that's really what James is saying here. And and I get that from the images that he includes in this verse. First he says... You have the waves on the sea that are driven and tossed by the wind. That's what a person who doubts is like. So imagine the ocean on a windy day and you're watching a specific part of the ocean and you see a wave go up and it goes down and then maybe another wave comes from another direction and then for a while the water is flat. It's always changing. And that's the image of someone who doubts where they trust God one hour and then they trust someone else or something else the next. They have no fixed belief or trust in God. And the second image is the double-minded person, a person of two minds, literally. I will trust God, and I will also cover my bases in case he doesn't come come through. So I'm also going to look at my horoscope for wisdom, and I'm going to look at the stars, and I'm going to get some crystals for some positive energy, and I will knock on wood to make sure I'm covered on that front. And I think that's the double-minded approach being asked about here, or talked about here. The Lord says, you don't have to do all that. I am waiting here and want to generously give you my wisdom. I understand you might be scared, you might be shaky, but I'm not going to condemn you. I want to help you, and I love you. Life's troubles may cause our faith to shake, but we still can exhibit trust in God through our uncertainty. So we ask God for his wisdom as we endure trials. That's a second action that you can follow with this revelation of God's wisdom. Ask God for his wisdom to endure the trials you're going through. Ask him to intervene. Ask him to show what you are to do or or what to say. And he's waiting to give generously without reproach. So what good can God bring us in trials? One, he can use trials to develop a steadfast faith in him. Two, he's ready to give his wisdom generously without finding fault. And then the last one we're going to look at today is found in verses 9 to 11. And again, it seems like a disconnected paragraph because he starts talking about poverty and wealth. What does that have to do with trials? Well, each one of those can be a trial. Poverty or wealth. So another good that God brings that can help us in trials is an eternal perspective on wealth. It's possible many of James' readers lived in poverty. So they had to deal with all the difficulties and all the struggles that came with that. But James writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Meaning it doesn't matter how the world defines you. God sees and values every person regardless of how much money they have in the back bank or how much property they own. Jesus spent most of his life living in poverty. He ministered to the poor primarily because poor people have a great sense of their need, they are much more aware of their needs than the wealthy. Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. And God had not forgotten them. God treasured them. And James repeats this message in verse 9. To try to help those who are in poverty. To not let that trial overwhelm them. But then he talks to the wealthy, those with an abundance of money and possessions and wealth in itself can be a trial for our faith because wealth distracts us from God. It can deceive us into thinking we don't really need God. So James reminds the wealthy person that like flowers and grass dry up and pass away, so will the lives of the wealthy. Our wealth cannot prevent death. Death is the great equalizer and we need an eternal perspective on this. And the New Testament is full of teaching on an eternal perspective towards wealth and possessions. It's ultimately not ours. It's his. And we are just managers of it during our time on earth. So if we have this perspective and then we go through the trial of losing some of our wealth, it's not the end of the world. Remember last week, From Hebrews 10, verse 34, those people had their property plundered from them. And the author of Hebrews says, you were joyful through it. Not that they were happy, but that they realized they still had the greatest possession in Christ. And we can endure the trials of poverty and wealth if we receive God's good gift of his teaching on it. So we need to ask Christ for a renewed mind on wealth, to prepare for our trials. We can pray, help us discern, O God, your perspective. Help us to resist the world's message that it's all about accumulating and getting more stuff and having more money. Instead, help us to see wealth as yours. So God can bring us good as we walk through trials, the good of a steadfast faith in him, his wisdom which he gives generously without reproach, and an eternal perspective on wealth that can help us through tough economic times. And with these in mind, James says in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But remember, this is not about doing all this in our own strength. We need the gospel to live out these commands. We need Jesus. And think about how Jesus endured his trials, similar to these ones. We're commanded to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Hebrews 12, 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus endured the cross by looking beyond it to the joy that would come out of it. And we're commanded to ask God for wisdom when we face trials. And what did Jesus do? Mark 1.35 Verily early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus got up to pray to seek wisdom from his Father. And we're commanded to learn God's eternal perspective on poverty and wealth. And what did Jesus do? 2 Corinthians 8-9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we need to come to Jesus today with our trials. We need to come and ask for a renewed mind about them. We need to ask for his wisdom. We ask for his strength and comfort and help. And as we come to prayer, that's exactly what I want us to do and I want to invite you at this time to bow your head, to close your eyes and to lift up to the Lord a trial, a struggle that you're going through right now. And Lord, you know all the trials and struggles that are being thought about right now. You know them more intimately than than we do. You know your purposes. You see the beginning and the end. You love us. I pray for all who are lifting up their trials to you now. And Lord, will you speak to us in them? Will you show us you're with us? Will you bear our burdens daily? Will you strengthen us and use this body as we strengthen one another? We praise you that you are a God who doesn't ignore our trials or just tells us come back when everything's okay but gets there down in the mud with us to lift us out. So continue your work in ministry, we pray, Lord. And I lift all these trials to you. You can bear them, you know, and be our strength, we pray. Amen.